We've got until 8.30. We're switching gears now to the second topic, which is hermeneutics. Okay? Anybody want to tell us what hermeneutics means? What does it basically mean? It's a, it's a simple word. I think a lot of you know what it means. What is hermeneutics? Okay, the rules for interpreting the Bible. Okay. Bible study methods. Okay. The, the ways in which you find out what the Scripture means. And in a sense, that's very much involved in the defense of the truths of Scripture. Okay. Hermeneutics is basically how to study the Bible and you don't really need to say it, but how to study it properly so that what you're getting out of it is what's really in it. Okay? There are a lot of people who study the Bible and think they have a, a way of hermeneutics. How many of you have heard of the Bible code? Okay? Well, the Bible code is a form of hermeneutics. Okay? Some guy, some knucklehead, took took the Hebrew Bible in computer form and said, gee, if I skip every 50th letter and write down what every 50th letter is and then put them on a page and go through there and see if it says something, then if it says something, that means God put that there. You know, and if he goes through and the code says, your dog has yellow wings then God must have said, your dog has yellow wings. You know, that's, that's a form of hermeneutics. It's total bunk, but it's a form of hermeneutics. Some guy decided that this is how God encoded information in the Bible, and he said, I figured out a way to get it out. That author, by the way, is Really? <laughs> Austin, not Dallas, I hope. I think Joe made that up. All right. Um, I, I've, I've given you syllabi for this course, okay? The syllabus is very much like the other one, and I'm not going to go over it. Um, and I, haven't, I don't have anywhere near enough for you tonight. I'll get these to you next week. The most important thing in there, and again, you can look at it next week, is that there's an outline of the things we're going to cover, Okay. But you really don't need to look at that right now. So let's just let's just skip over the syllabus and let's let's jump into the real material of the course. And I'm going to turn this lights off again. Okay. How to interpret the Bible? Before we start talking about how to interpret the Bible, we need to ask a more fundamental question. What is the nature of the Bible? I mean, what kind of book is this? What's that? Okay. It is a book that is spiritually discerned, and we're going to see that. That's a very important point. Okay? You know, if, if, if this was a phone book, you would interpret it differently than if it were the Farmer's Almanac. Okay? or if it were a Dilbert comic book, or if it were a Shakespearean sonnet, okay? There are many different kinds of books in the world, many different kinds of literature, and how you interpret them really depends on what kind of literature you're dealing with, 
So we have to ask ourselves, what kind of book is the Bible? And there are two basic answers to this question. Now, does anybody know what an axiom is? Okay, it's a principle. That is correct. But there are many different principles. There's something special about an axiom. An axiom is a principle that we take as being true. We consider it to be foundational. Okay? An axiom is something that if you don't have it, you can't move forward. You know, you all studied geometry in high school. One of the axioms of geometry is that two parallel lines never intersect. Okay? That's an axiom. If you don't have that, you can't do Euclidean geometry. Okay? Question? It is a presupposition, absolutely. That's a perfect way to put it. Now, it's very interesting. The Bible has no defense of its divine quality. Okay? Well, I, I'm sorry, that's human. The second, I jumped ahead. The second axiom is that it's a divine book. If you read the Bible, the Bible doesn't say, this book is written by God and here's why you should think it's written by God. It just presents itself as the Word of God. Um, that is why I'm saying these are axioms. Now, if you don't accept these axioms, I'll take your question in a minute. If you don't accept these axioms, okay, then in many ways you can't proceed to do hermeneutics in the way that we're going to do them. Okay? We are coming at the scriptures with the confidence that this book is a revelation from God. If you don't think that it's a revelation from God, if you don't accept this second axiom, a lot of the things that I'm going to say come from these axioms won't make sense to you. Okay? Question. Okay, so the scripture that says all scripture is God's Okay. Well, all right, it is. It is. You're right. But it's a declaration. Okay? It's not really a proof. I think scripture proves itself. For, and, and I'm glad you made that distinction. It's very important. Okay? Scripture does declare that it's the word of God. But the proof that it's the Word of God is found in things like its accurate description of human nature. That's the thing that caught my attention when I first interacted with Scripture. Okay? Or the fact that it contains prophecies that have already been fulfilled. Okay? There's a defense of the supernatural quality of Scripture. Okay? There are a number of things that we can find in Scripture that defend Scripture but scripture isn't really designed to defend itself. It just asserts, I am the word of God. Okay? Well, these are the two axioms that we're going to work with. And what we're going to look at is how these axioms are going to lead our approach to scripture. How they're going to give us an approach for doing hermeneutics. Okay? We've already talked about what an axiom is. Okay. The Bible is a human book. And that means that it uses human language. I don't know if you guys in the back can read this. This is pretty small, and I apologize for that. Okay? Every book of the Bible is recorded in a written human language that follows normal grammatical meanings, including the use of figurative language. 
Okay? When Jesus says, I am the gate, he doesn't mean there's a hinge here and there's a hinge here, and he swings. Okay? That's figurative language. Okay? You use figurative language all the time. Right? That's part of human language. All right. The Bible was written to a particular audience. Every biblical writing was written by someone to some audience in a particular situation. Okay? This is particularly clear when you're looking at the New Testament. You know, Paul says, an apostle of Christ Jesus writing to the saints at Rome. But every book of the Bible was written by somebody, some human person. Now, I'm not denying God's role in that. We'll talk about that later. And it was written to an audi audience in a particular situation. The audience had to be people who understood the language. They were generally people who shared the culture of the writer. There was enough contact between them for them to communicate. Now, let me ask you a question. Daniel was writing to Jews in Babylon around 500-some years B.C., okay? How many of us are Jews who speak Hebrew who grew up in Babylon? None of us. Does that mean that it's impossible for us to understand what he wrote? Does it? No. Why? Because there's enough continuity of culture and ideas and of language and scripture provides enough clues so that we can understand what he wrote. Okay? And it's interesting, human civilization going all the way back, I believe writing and language existed all the way back to Adam and Eve, okay? There's enough continuity in that so that we can make sense of what people wrote thousands and thousands of years ago. We may have to establish that continuity, but once it's been established, we can understand what they wrote. Okay. Culture. The writings of the Bible reflect the cultural environment in which they were written. Now, don't push this too far. Okay? They do reflect the culture, but that doesn't mean that the culture overrode the truth. Have you ever heard people say things like this? In the Gospels, there are records of Jesus casting out demons. And when Jesus casts a demon out of a little boy, he stops rolling on the ground and frothing at the mouth and falling into the fire and falling into the water. Now, really what happened was that kid was an epileptic and Jesus cured him of epilepsy. Have you ever heard that? Okay. Is that true? I don't think it's true. Okay? Now, here's, here's the deal. Someone who would say that what Jesus really did was that he cured the kid of epilepsy would be saying that the writer who wrote down that story was accommodating himself to a culture where they didn't know about epilepsy. And so the guy who wrote the gospel said that the kid had a demon so that he could communicate with those people, but they were wrong. The kid didn't have a demon. He had epilepsy. Okay? Now, I reject that argument. I think scripture is written in such a way that although what is written reflects the culture in which it was written, 
what was written was not accommodated to the culture in such a way that truth was sacrificed. Does that make sense? Okay. All right. Context. Okay. Each biblical writing was designed to be understood in the light of its context. Now, context simply means everything around it. Okay? There's historical context. Okay, you read the book of Habakkuk, and Habakkuk says, look at the people in Israel, or look at the people in Judah. They're very ungodly, wicked people. God, why don't you do something about it? And God says, oh, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send in the Babylonians, and they're going to clean your clock. They're going to invade. They're going to conquer you. They're going to drag you out of the country. They're going to kill a lot of you. Okay? Well, to make sense of what Habakkuk was writing, you need to know a little bit about the history of that time. Now, the interesting thing about Scripture is that Scripture gives you the history that you need to understand what it's talking about. Okay? Scripture includes a lot of history, and the more you know of that history that's in Scripture, the more you can understand what's written. There's cultural context. Okay? Um, well, in the book of Habakkuk, God says to Habakkuk that the Babylonians are like fishermen who use nets and hooks to capture people. Now, we read that and we think that's a very interesting metaphor. Well, the Babylonians learned warfare from the Assyrians. You know what the Assyrians like, like to do? They'd bring ropes with big fish hooks and they'd take the fish hook and when they captured somebody and they took them back to their land to use them as a slave, they'd take the hook and they go right up through your chin, right here. And they'd drag you on a rope like a fish. Okay? That's part of the cultural context. If you know that, the image becomes a lot more concrete. Okay? Linguistic context. The book of Daniel. Remember in chapter 2, the king builds this statue and he says, Now whenever you hear the sound of the lute, higher, uh, uh, the lute, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of musical instruments, you have to bow down to the statue. Well, that list of musical instruments are all Greek words. Now, Alexander the Great didn't conquer the Middle East until about 200 years later than the book of Daniel was written. Now, biblical critics said that since there were Greek words in the book of Daniel and the Greeks hadn't come through Persia until 200 years after Daniel wrote, then the book must have been written after Alexander the Great came through, which means it couldn't have been written by Daniel. Okay? And for years, critical scholars argued that the book of Daniel was not a real book from the time period it claimed to be. Then guess what was discovered? It was discovered that the Greeks had been through the area, and those words for musical instruments had been in use 50 or 100 years before the time that Daniel lived. Okay? So that argument falls apart. But see, knowing something about the culture, knowing something about the language, because this is an argument having to do with where, where words come from, will help you to see what's going on in Scripture. There's theological context. Okay? You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses said, 
the Lord will raise up a prophet like me from your midst, and when he comes, you must listen to him. Remember that? Well, when John the Baptist comes along and he starts saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, people say, who are you? And one of the things they say is, are you the prophet? I think Bob talked about this recently. Okay, Who is the prophet? The prophet is the one that Moses said would come. Now, if you know about that expectation that was in the minds of the Jews because Moses had said a special prophet from God will come, then when you read that people said to John the Baptist, are you the prophet? You understand better what their question is. Again, knowing the context will help you to understand what's going on in a given piece of scripture that we're studying. Okay. Genre or genre. I don't know how to say this word properly. It's a French word. I hate the French language because I can't pronounce anything in it. Okay? But we generally say genre. Okay? Genre means style of writing. Every biblical writing took on the nature of a particular literary form, a kind of writing. Now, some books include several styles of writing. Let's talk about styles of writing. If I drew two little stick figures here and I put a bunch of little circles and then a big balloon and I wrote in here and I wrote nice legs and this one's a guy and this one's a girl, you know that this guy is thinking that this girl has nice legs, right? How do you know that? How do you know that putting that in a balloon with a bunch of little circles going down to the guy's head tells you that that's what he's thinking? Convention. convention. That's exactly right. What's a convention? Something that we've seen over and over. Okay, good. It's something we've seen over and over and over. It's a way of doing things that we all know. We all know how comic strips work, right? When you see Batman and you see Splat. Boom! You know, these, these funny things, okay? You know what that is. Those are sound effects. Um, you know, th there are all kinds of conventions of writing. There are cookbooks, okay? When you see TBSP, what does that mean? Tablespoon. How do you know that? It's a convention, okay? We know all kinds of conventions of communication. Um, a stock ticker tape. We don't have that anymore, but there's something that runs along the bottom of your TV set that looks like that, right? And you know the, those three-letter symbols with a number next to them. Okay, what does that mean? It's the value of a stock. It, it's, it's a number that's going down, right? Okay. But you, you know what that is, right? Because you're part of a culture and you understand conventions. Well... All the books of the Bible include conventions. Um, when you look, at, when you read the Psalms, okay, and the psalmist says something twice in slightly different words, okay, that's a common convention in the Psalms. The Hebrews didn't use uh, rhyme like we use it in sounds. They used rhyme in concepts. So they'd say a concept and they'd 
say it again. Um, my mind is blank for an example right now, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Um, in uh, the book of Daniel, in chapter 7, Daniel sees a bunch of beasts coming up. There's, a, there's one that looks like a lion and one that looks like a leopard and one that's dreadful and there's one that looks like a bear. If you read that book, there are clues there to tell you those beasts represent something. What do they represent? Kingdoms. Okay? Those are conventions. All right? Um, Proverbs. Uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. Is that always true? It's not. So does the Bible lie? Why not? If it's not always true and it's in the Bible, then something that's in the Bible is sometimes not true. Therefore, the Bible lies. Help me. That's an exhortation. It's not a rule. Okay. It's not a rule. Okay. It, it's an exhortation in the sense that it's in, it's motivating you to do something. But what is a proverb? Okay, a proverb is a, is is, a, is wisdom literature, and it's telling you what. How things generally work. Okay, how things generally work, not how things always work. Okay, First John one nine. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Is that a proverb? Is it absolutely true? Yes, it is. Okay? How do you know that? Because that comes from 1 John, and 1 John is not wisdom literature. It's didactic theology. It's somebody giving you well-digested theological truths that are absolute. Okay? Or at least absolute within the context in which they're given. Okay? We understand... What happened? Oh, I did it. Okay. We, we instinctively understand this thing about genre. Genre is very important when you're interpreting scripture. You have to pay attention to the style of writing that you're looking at. Okay, logic and communication. Again, we're talking about characteristics of the Bible that have to do with the fact that it's a human book. Okay, logic and communication. Every biblical writing was designed to be understood. This is one of the reasons why I think the Bible code is baloney. Okay? You couldn't even do the Bible code until computers came along. Right? That would mean that the information that was in the Bible was inaccessible for 3,500 years, some of it. I just don't think that's the way God works. It was designed to be understood in accordance with the basic principles of logic and meaningful communication. What does this mean? This means, basically, that a whole lot of biblical interpretation is nothing but common sense. Okay? And all of us have a certain amount of common sense. Maybe not as much as we'd like, but it, it's, it's, not always, it's not really that difficult. At, at least in the fundamentals, yes. So, maybe this isn't the avenue to get into this, but just briefly, can you mm -hmm. say, so how does the Holy Spirit fit into that? Oh, okay. Supposition and mm. supposition. 
We're getting there. Okay? You're ahead of me, and that's good. All right? Okay, let's talk about... We said we've got two axioms, right? The Bible is a human book, meaning it has the characteristics of human communication that we looked at, but it's also a divine book. When we say it's a divine book, we mean it's from the mind of God. Okay? That means that it's inerrant. If God is who he says he is, if he's all-knowing, if he's all-powerful, if he's holy, if he's just, if he's righteous, he's not going to be communicating error to us. So the scripture is inerrant. It's without error. Therefore, it is true and it should be approached on this basis. Now, basically what that means is if I'm studying scripture and I run into something that seems to be wrong, like that proverb I just quoted to you, okay? I've done my best to raise my son Andrew and he's turning out to be a bum. Okay? Well, you know what? I mean, scripture is wrong. No, it doesn't mean scripture is wrong. It means, Andrew is not a bum, by the way. It means that I did something wrong. Okay? Now, what am I saying? I'm saying that I need to approach Scripture with the confidence that what it says is true. And being confident of that will actually help me to solve the problems. Okay? And you'll see how that works out later. Okay? Okay, secondly, the Bible is authoritative. We are obligated to obey it. Now, what does that mean? This, this, this is more important, how you handle this is more important than how the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution. You know why? Because how the Supreme Court interprets the Constitution only affects people's lives until the day they die. How we interpret this affects people's lives until the end of eternity, which never comes. Okay? Since the Bible is authoritative, when we interpret it, we are looking for authoritative statements from God. Now, some of them are simply statements of facts, but some of them are statements about what I should do and what you should do. And if I'm going to stand up you know, in a home Bible study or in the pulpit or if I'm going to share this with my neighbor and I'm going to say the Bible says you need to do this and I darn well better be careful that I get it right. Okay? There's a lot at stake here. Okay. Now here's a big one. The Bible has unity because it comes from one mind. Now remember, if we were to stretch out all the books of the Bible along a timeline, starting with Genesis here and going all the way over here to Revelation, we've got 66 books written by about 40 different authors covering a span of at least 1,500 years, maybe a little bit more. These people lived in different cultures, in different places. They spoke different languages. Some of them spoke the same language, but a language that had developed over a hundred, I'm sorry, over a thousand years. 
How many of us can read Chaucer and understand it? But Chaucer was English, okay? It's Old English, okay? Well, Hebrew developed in the course of the Old Testament, okay? These people lived under different empires in different kinds of societies. Some of them were slaves. Some of them were kings. Some of them were prophets. Some of them were fishermen. Strangely enough, though, you look at the information in all those books over this whole span, and the information is internally consistent. And it's either utterly bizarre, or it's an amazing proof that scripture is from what? It's from the mind of God. Okay? If I were to start writing a novel, and I wrote one chapter, and I told my son, later you write a chapter, and then you pass this on to your son and have him write a chapter, and we went on for ten generations, do you think we could come up with a story that hung together? I doubt it. Okay? Well, scripture is not a novel. It's about the truth. And it is consistent from beginning to end. Okay? Very important evidence of its divine nature. Now, since it is a unity, it never contradicts itself. That means if you find two things in Scripture that seem to contradict themselves, or seem to contradict each other, Paul says <coughs> salvation is by grace through faith alone, and James says faith without works is dead. Okay? They don't contradict. If you are confident that they don't contradict, then you will look at these two things and you'll say, how can they be reconciled? And you'll look and you'll discover they can be reconciled. But you have to have the confidence that this is all from the mind of God. Or you know what? You're going to give up too early. One of the reasons unbelieving scholars come to the conclusion that scripture doesn't make sense is because they approach it without any confidence and they give up before trying hard enough to make sense of what is there. Okay? You need to have confidence in this. And by the way, it is not a self-fulfilling prophecy. There are books that you can approach with confidence and you can't make any sense of them. Okay? But you can with scripture. Okay. We need to interpret difficult passages in the light of clearer passages. If something is said that we can't quite make sense of, we can look somewhere else in Scripture that treats the same topic or a similar topic and get help and then put all that data together. Okay? The Bible often interprets itself for us. In prophecy, God will sometimes provide an angel and he will say, the four beasts are, or something like that. <coughs> so they're often built-in interpretations and sometimes there are models of interpretation. You can see you can see in, in Daniel chapter 7, for example, that a king, let's see, how does it go? Um, is it a head represents a king in a kingdom? Is that how it goes, Gary? I can't remember. I think that's how it goes. And you can see you, you see that in Daniel chapter 7 and you go to the book of Revelation and you see the same thing going on. So you can sometimes get a model of interpretation from one place and use it somewhere else. <clears throat> okay. The Bible evidences progressive revelation. 
This is a really important one, okay? And the easiest way to illustrate this is to think about what the Bible tells us about Christ. Back in Genesis 3.15, we talked about this already, right? The serpent comes in, leads Adam and Eve into sin, and God says in Genesis 3.15, the seed of woman will strike the seed of the serpent, right? And the seed of woman will get harmed on the heel, but the serpent is going to have his head crushed, okay? That's some kind of vague prediction that a human being will be used by God to undo the damage that Satan has done to the human race. And you come along to Genesis 12, and God says to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Well, we don't know exactly what that means, but we find out later, we go to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 4, we're told that that blessing includes the coming of Christ to bring salvation to the whole world. Okay? But you could trace the predictions of the coming of the Savior through the Old Testament. It's going to be, it's going to be a human, the seed of the woman. It's going to be a descendant of Abraham. Then it's going to be somebody from the tribe of Judah. Then it's going to be somebody who's a descendant of David. Okay? Then it's going to be somebody who's going to be born in Nazareth. Then it's going to be somebody who's going to be virgin-born. And you get more and more information until you get down to the end and you got all the information you need and you know what? Jesus shows up and he's the one. Okay? Scripture involves progressive revelation. It's very important to recognize that sometimes a little information is given early and later additional information is given that additional information will narrow the focus, but it will never contradict what was said earlier. Very important. Okay? Question? Did I say something stupid? Okay. It was what? Bethlehem. Oh, Bethlehem. Thank you. I did say something stupid. See? I told you I would. Okay. The Bible has mystery. Therefore, some things in it are hard to understand. Okay? Now, let me simply say, I believe there are things in Scripture that are hard to understand and maybe some things that nobody has understood yet. But God has made it sufficiently clear that the things we need to understand, we can understand. Right? We haven't been left without what we need. You know, Second Peter says, All things have been provided to you that are necessary for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who <coughs> called you by glory and virtue. Okay. I'm starting to lose my voice. Um, we've got about six minutes left. <coughs> That's everything I wanted to cover tonight. Do you have any questions? Do you have any questions? We, we've covered a lot of stuff. What are the two axioms? The Bible is a human book and a divine book. Okay. The fact that it's a human book basically means what? You could put almost everything that we said about it being a human book together and say that the Bible communicates in what way? In an understandable way just like other books, okay? Just like other books, okay? In some ways, the Bible is just like other books. 
But it's the fact that it is both a human book and a divine book that makes it special. And you put the two of them together and you've got something that is capable of communicating from the mind of God. It can go from God to us, but it does so without error. You know, some people have made a comparison between the human and divine qualities of Scripture and the human and divine qualities of Christ. In both cases, we've got something that is capable of going from God and reaching us. Okay? In Christ, we see the nature of the Father. Okay? In Scripture, we see what God wants us to know. Okay? Both Christ and the Word have divine and human qualities. And God has designed it that way. You know? And, and you know, you, you can look at what Scripture says about human beings and you can come to one of two conclusions and neither one of them is really fully correct. You can look at what Scripture says about human beings and you can say, we are dirty, rotten scum. We are the lowest creatures in the universe. You know, because of our sin, we are so, so evil. But then you can say, you know what? We bear the image of God. We're the only creatures in the universe beside the angels who have the spiritual equipment to communicate with the eternal creator. And that's a very exalted reality, isn't it? Well, what are we? We're both of those. Okay? Kind of an interesting thing. But we're headed to being redeemed. Yes? Yeah, what about the Quran? Would you not say that they would say that it's a human book and, and a divine book inspired by... Uh, <coughs> they, they probably would. I, I, I wouldn't presume to, to speak on that in any way but generalities. Okay? Um, there are many religions of the world that have special books. Um, I think it's fair to say, though, that Scripture is unique among those books uh, in its age, in its chronological length, in the depth in which it goes into things. You know, and again, I, I don't want to make comparisons on things I don't know, but I, I would simply say this. The track record of Scripture is perfect and the reality of fulfilled prophecy you know which can be demonstrated historically is so impressive that you can't say that this book is not reliable okay if you look at the evidence fairly now starting from that point you can argue further this book contains statements by Jesus where he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. Now, if this book is true, <laughs> except through me. Yeah, did it again. Okay. No one comes to the Father except through me. All right, forgive me. Um, if that is true, okay, if this is a reliable book and if it contains a statement like that, that basically excludes all other ways of coming to God. Now, that is not a politically correct statement, okay? 
Um, but I'm going to make it, and I think all of you would make it too. Scripture says there is only one way to God, and that is through Jesus Christ. And, and, and we're approaching the Scriptures with that understanding. Okay? Uh, We've got time for one more question.